Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the LawCast. This week, we're taking a trip back in time to October 1991 for WCW Halloween Havoc 1991. And Kyush, to me, it's very unfortunate that Halloween Havoc was always such a terrible show because I absolutely love the pay-per-view concept. This is easily the best pay-per-view that WCW always put on. I mean, Starcade has its own appeal and stuff like that, and they always had cool names, like I'll always have like Slamboree and Spring Stampede and all of those, but Halloween Havoc is like the definitive WCW pay-per-view to me. They had all of the Halloween imagery. It's something that no other wrestling company really did. Like, nobody else really embraced Halloween like that. WWE is always, like, obsessed with Thanksgiving and Christmas and whatever, but Halloween, it ties together so perfectly with wrestling. And it's, it's flexible, too, because you can do it in kind of like a goofy, fun, trick-or-treat kind of way. Or if you're presenting a more serious product, you could do it in like a scary way. Like, this is actually a scary show with demons and the occult and all that. It's a wonder that with Undertaker and Kane actively on the roster, they never did shit for Halloween in WWE. No. the only I mean, the closest thing I can think of is the um, October 96 Buried Alive in Your House. Yeah. And that was just kind of a coincidence. It was just a match concept, and it was the right time to do Undertaker against Mankind there. But yeah, like I, it will always disappoint me that they have not used this pay-per-view. They're finally uh, bringing back Starcade, even if it's just a you know house show in Greensboro. But I really wish they would bring back Halloween Havoc, and especially with them doing 20 pay-per-views a year now or whatever they're doing, they could definitely make room on the schedule for this. I can't wait until Triple H takes over and literally all of the pay-per-views change to WCW names. <laughs> yes. W, it'll turn out WCW won in the long run. Oh, he's just been a sleeper agent the whole time. Yeah, it was always insane that they fired him and now we know the truth. They just sent him <laughs> over to the WWE to take over. Oh my God, what a story that would make. The AOL Time Warner merger just fucked everything up. Oh, that's hilarious. <sighs> And as ridiculous as that sounds, there's some people out there who think that's what Vince did with Sean and with Diesel and Razor and with Bret Hart. Uh, it, boy, there's some crazy fucking people out there, and some of them are listening to us right now. Hi, guys. We love you, weirdos. <laughs> so getting into kind of where we were at this point, WCW was a mess in the fall of 1991. Um the big break, so the last time we checked in on WCW, we did Fall Brawl 90, and that was a pretty bad show with the Black Scorpion and just sorts of all other nonsense going on. Since then, things have gotten even worse because they fired Ric Flair. And it's it'll always fascinate me that they could have ever let Ric Flair go, and I know that this was like the Jim Hurd era and everything's <laughs> fucked and stupid and nobody had any idea what was valuable and what wasn't. But holy shit, Ric Flair is the brand at this point in time. He has personally brought along Lex Luger and Sting and is basically entirely responsible for their early success. And literally, he leaves, and who do you have to replace him on the roster? And we're going to come to see nobody. No. I mean, this has always been a heel territory. They end up going with Lex Luger as the heel champion, and it, it doesn't, it's odd because Luger's clearly supposed to be a heel, but I just don't think at this point he was the right fit for the kind of product WCW fans expected. They're used to the 30-minute Ric Flair championship match, and Lex Luger cannot put on that kind of match. Yeah, it's important to remember, like if you've been a WWF fan your entire life, 
like you're used to like the big muscular stiff who kind of gets pushed to the top and there were a lot of those in WCW and NWA too but they didn't really win the title it's important to note that going all the way back to the 70s the champion was a workhorse always 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 there are pretty much no exceptions to this depending on how you feel about rugged Ronnie Garvin but <laughs> It's it's just amazing. Like this is the first time that they ever experiment with just making some big stiff a champion, and they try to make him in the Ric Flair mold, and it really only holds him back more because there's no way Lex Luger can do that. No. So what happened uh, in the summer of '91? Flair's contract was coming up. Jim Hurd tried to get him to take a big pay cut. Flair told him to fuck off. Negotiations broke down. They decided, okay, we're not going to continue with this, Rick. You're going to finish up. They wanted him to lose the title to Lex Luger at the Great American Bash. And Flair said no because he had promised the belt to Sting. Agreement on that. And so Jim Hurd just fired Ric Flair while he was still the world champion. And Ric Flair took the world title belt to the WWF, which we covered in our SummerSlam 1991 episode. But this is a, kind of an underappreciated event in wrestling history, I think. And probably one of the big impetuses for the Montreal screw job was that this had happened. Oh, yeah, I definitely agree with that. Like, basically, and this is the stupid thing on Jim Hurd's part. Like, the biggest part of this, and the reason why Ric Flair can say that he promised the belt to Sting, was that being the champion meant a whole, meant something different at the time. Like, Ric Flair physically owned the belt. Like you have yeah. to put in like a ten thousand dollar deposit. Twenty five thousand. Twenty five thousand. A lot of money today, but he, I mean, this is almost thirty years ago. Even more money back then. Yeah. Just to become the champion, you had to give that money. If you couldn't afford that, you couldn't be champion. It was a commitment. It was something that said that yes, I am going to put forward this money, and I'm going to do that to prove that I take this very, very seriously, and I'm going to be this guy. So he owned this. Like, this was his belt. And so when he said that he promised it to Sting, that's a big deal. So yeah. when they fired him, he just took it with him. And there's nothing that they because could they do. Refused, they refused to pay him the money back. Yeah. Which was just so stupid and spiteful. Like, ugh, just nonsense. And they, it turned out the bridge wasn't burned forever because they ended up firing Jim Hurd about six months after this. So... Once Heard was gone, they were able to get Flair back, but could have been this could have put them out of business. Yeah, it, it was very, very bad, and the fans turn on everything to do with it immediately. Like they side with Flair over the company without question. Yeah. Flair was CM Punk before CM Punk, basically. Yeah, In Great America. We'll do Great American Bash '91 at some point because it's just a debacle of a show. Yeah, um, it is. One of the worst pay-per-views, probably the worst pay-per-view I've ever seen. Um, at least it was put on by a major company, and the crowd just spends the entire show chanting, we want Flair. <laughs> Even though they know he's they know he's been fired, it was announced on TV, they know it's not a storyline, and yet, you know, all they want is Ric Flair. So at the bash, um, the, the title was held up, um, Luger beat... Uh, Barry Windham, who like hadn't really even been wrestling, uh, to win the vacant world title in a steel cage match. He did this by turning heel. Um, Harley Race became his manager, and that's our setup. It's 
Luger is the heel champion. Harley Race is his manager. Like, an awkward pairing in my view, but I, I thought Harley was a really good heel manager. Oh, Harley's a great heel manager, and it's without question that Lex Luger definitely needed something to him. You couldn't just have him cutting heel promos. He could barely cut the angry babyface promos that pretty much anyone in the world can cut on their first day of wrestling school. So it was a good idea to put him with him, but it's also kind of an awkward fit. Because Harley's very much that kind of old-school, NWA-style guy. And if anything's going to work about Lex Luger being a heel, it's the fact that he's so naturally unlikable. Like, to the degree that, like, Ricky Steamboat is a natural babyface, Lex Luger is a natural dickhead. We all agree on this. Oh, yeah. So, um, his first big feud and his first big title defense here is against Ron Simmons. Um, Simmons you know, had been teaming with Butch Reed as part of Doom. That was under a mask uh, for most of that time as in the team. Ron Simmons is not ready for a pay-per-view main event here, and this is really bad matchmaking in my mind because Lex Luger needs to work with somebody who can kind of guide him through a big main event match, and Ron Simmons is not that guy at this point. And is there... why, like, neither guy should lose here. Like, who... Why are you going to beat Ron Simmons when he's, you know, filled with huge potential and should be one of your top projects? Why are you going to have him get a title shot and lose here? Is there anybody that he should have faced here, though? Like, who's, other than Sting, like, who's available? Not a lot of good options. Um, you know, the guy, I probably, I probably would have done Dusty here. Uh, Dusty's not wrestling. He's booking. But I think... You know, kind of a Rocky-type storyline where Dusty's getting back in shape to try to get one last run at the title. That wouldn't have been a masterpiece of a match, but you could have gotten 10 hot minutes out of that. Yeah, a better company probably would have framed this whole thing as Lex Luger, like, turning his back on Ric Flair and WCW and then having, like, a bunch of legends come from him, come for him because he's the dickhead young guy who's disrespecting NWA history. Like, that would make a lot of sense. It's just a shame that they don't have Ricky Steamboat at this point, because that's Steamboat the perfect guy. Steamboat would have been perfect. Yeah, yeah, I was exactly. just thinking that a second ago, but yeah, Steamboat's... They let Steamboat go. He's in the WWF as, not Ricky Steamboat, but the Dragon right now. Good job, Jim Hurd. A+. Plus. Yeah. Good job, Vince McMahon, on that one, too. Oh, yeah. Uh, don't want to give them any credit for that. <laughs> so, in one kind of added bit of mostly bad luck, I would say... It turned out this game was this pay-per-view was scheduled opposite Game Seven of the World Series, and to make it even worse, it was the Atlanta Braves playing in their first World Series in decade. I mean, I think their first since they were in Atlanta, the Braves' first series, World Series in decades. Uh, and the Atlanta Braves in this, era, especially in this era, were the South's baseball team because the Nationals weren't in D.C., the Florida teams weren't around yet. So you've got the entire South their baseball team in game seven of the world series playing in the world series for the first time ever. It is a really bad series of things that happened here, but I don't know what they could have done about it. Cause you have to schedule these pay-per-views a year in advance and you only have so many dates that you can make work. Yeah. Like I grew up in Southern Virginia. Believe me when I tell you that the Atlanta Braves were the shit in the early 90s. They had everybody. Everybody was yep. wearing Braves merchandise. It was like the Chicago Bulls. Like, it's just the Bulls and the Braves and the Cowboys everybody liked. Like, that's yep. just one of those things. 
Braves games were on national TV. Like in the '90s, I would, like living in the North. I would sometimes watch the Braves because if you had nothing to do, you turn on the TV. It's like, oh, there's a sport. There's sports on. It's a baseball game. It's the Braves on TBS. Yep, and it must be said, like this is just my personal opinion. I'm not like a baseball specialist or anything like that, but this may be the greatest World Series game of all time. It's it might it's definitely my favorite. <laughs> so it's yeah, the, um, hard to say like, hey, let's turn on the wrestling and turn off this game that goes to extra innings and is only one run. Yeah, the Braves would of course lose because it's the Braves in the World Series. Uh, they lost one zero to the Twins in ten innings. Uh, yeah, um, tough luck, WCW. Um, so this pay-per-view was not terribly successful. It's October 27th, 1991. It's the UTC Arena in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Uh, 8,900 fans in attendance. Um, a .8 buy rate, which is about 120,000 buys. It's down pretty substantially from more like 160,000 for the previous year, which was... Sting versus Sid in the main event. Uh, I mean, n not as bad as like this. This is a pay per view with all those factors in this card. I could have seen this one being under a hundred thousand buys. Oh, for sure. Like, I I'm not sure the people who did buy it. I'm not really sure what they're buying. Like, this is kind of proof that, to some extent, wrestling fans just kind of go like just buy whatever every month. Like, if you're a monthly wrestling fan buyer, you you're probably always going to buy them. And back then, WCW was only doing, like, five pay-per-views a year at this point. They hadn't had a pay-per-view since uh, the Great American Bash in June. Yeah, so it's just one of those things. Like, the entire purpose of wrestling booking is to get the people who don't normally buy every pay-per-view to just come out and buy them. Because there's always going to be a baseline, and that baseline kind of determines where your year-to-year business is going to be. It kind of – it's – this – the floor kind of hovered at 100,000 buys forever. I mean, WSW fell under 100,000 at the very end. And WWE, into, you know, until they stopped selling pay-per-views, no matter how crappy a card they put together and how many pay-per-views they were doing, they would still do at least 100,000 buys. I think the worst they ever did was um, uh, the like Battleground 2013 with Daniel Bryan and Randy Orton in the title held in abeyance, still did like 110,000 buys or something. Yeah. And I mean, that just goes to show, like, there, there are at least 110,000 people in this country who are like you and me, who just always bought it. Yeah. Good. Much nicer now that it's just a $10 a month subscription. Hell of a lot nicer. I think we should credit that to the economy turning around in 2014. Hell yeah. Way more money in all of our pockets. Um, so... Getting into the show, um, we start with Eric Bischoff dressed as a vampire out in the parking lot. <laughs> like, just two years after this, this guy would be put in charge of WCW and become one of the most powerful men in professional wrestling. And a couple of years after that, he would be one of the most powerful men in entertainment. And here he's like the valet dressed as a vampire. He's Josh Matthews. Like that's his role on this show is to do the crappy interviews and get abused by everyone. That that's that's what he does. And this is like the vampire thing is some kind of rib on him. Although I think I think the announcers dressing up for Halloween is kind of fun. Oh no, I love it. I thought it was yeah. so funny when like Missy Hyatt did it and he did it and they're literally like the only two people on the whole show who dressed up. 
Yeah, that's part of, that's part of the problem though. Is if you're going to do it, I feel like everybody has to do it. But the, it feels like something Jim Ross was not going to have a good sense of humor about. It's did Jim Ross ever dress up for this, or was he always just like super serious sportscaster? Uh, yeah, Jim Ross was not up for this kind of sh- these kinds of shenanigans. Uh, yeah, this is this is this is serious sports. Serious sports. Um, so what happens here? First, Cactus Jack and Abdullah the Butcher roll up in their rental car, which is like a good humorous visual, but I don't think was a. I don't. I wouldn't have used those guys as the joke. Like I think El Gigante driving a car would have been a good joke. Like he's sitting in the back seat of an Oldsmobile or something. But no, Cactus yeah. and Abby are too serious for that, in my view. El Gigante pulling up in like a VW Bug, like the classic Simpsons joke. That would have been great. <laughs> But no, like, it's important to note, too, that, like, if you didn't grow up watching Abby in the 70s, like, he doesn't look good anymore at all. He looks fucking terrible. So, like, the mystique of his name is really all that he has. So when you have him pull up in a battered rental car, wearing a button-down shirt like he's on his way to an interview at Burger King, like, it does not do anything for him. Yeah, I... I don't know whether in this era I would not have acknowledged that they were real people like outside of wrestling in the modern era. It's a little different where I think you kind of have to admit that like, yeah, the undertaker is not his real name. He's not actually an undead zombie, but back then I think I would have tried to protect kayfabe a little more than this. But the real thing that happens here is Barry Windham pulls up and then Arn Anderson and Larry Zbysko show up and beat him up and slam his hand in the car door to break it. I I have not like I hadn't I haven't seen the TVs from the way into this, but I, I really have no idea what what this was about because Barry Windham wasn't booked on the card. Yeah, they they play some lip service towards saying that like, hey, Dustin Rhodes and Barry Windham might want to challenge for the tag team titles down the road, which is fine, but like they're not challenging tonight. Like, I don't know if he was injured and they were trying to cover for it, but he didn't have a match on the card. Like, it, there's no real reason for this to have happened. Yeah, does this set up something for Starcade? I don't think so. No, Starcade's Star the Battle Bowl. I just don't understand why it couldn't have happened on TV, you know? Yeah. Anyway, so we get into the first match. Uh, so Jim Ross and Tony Schiavone are the announced team tonight, and that's a weird pairing because they're both – Play-by-play guys, but I thought they were actually really good together. I really love Tony Schiavone during this era. Like, he's kind of corny, and, like, he kind of seems like an idiot next to Jim Ross. I'm not trying to insult Tony Schiavone like that, but he's, like, he's the simple man compared to, like, the intelligent sportscaster that Jim Ross is. So he's kind of feeding it to us, kind of like a like a more professional Don West. You know what I mean? Like, he's just very enthusiastic about everything, and it's just like, oh, JR, what was that? What's going on? I kind of yeah. like them together. I think it's a good, solid pairing, and I thought the announce- the announcing on this show was definitely the least of the problems. So the opening match is the infamous Chamber of Horrors match. Uh-huh. It's Big Van Vader, uh, the Diamond Stud, which is Scott Hall, Abdullah the Butcher, and Cactus Jack against Sting, Rick Steiner, Scott Steiner, and El Gigante. Now, the first thing that jumps out at me is this is a whole lot of talent in one match. These guys are all Hall of Famers, except El Gigante. Say well, <laughs> except um, El Gigante, and you're putting, but you're just putting them in an absolutely terrible situation. 
please try to remember as we go through the rest of this card, all of the names that are in this stupid-ass match that doesn't need to exist. <sighs> because this is a, a, a light, light talent card, and all of these people are just in here doing this instead. It's just insanely bad matchmaking. Like, I, I remember when we did Judgment Day 04, we said it was crazy to do with how thin their roster was at that point to do a tag match with the Dudleys and Rob Van Dam, Dudleys against Van Dam and Mysterio. And here it's an even thinner roster and they're putting like eight pretty big overstars. I mean, at least seven of these guys are big deals except for El Gigante. And they're yes. just blowing it all in this one terrible match. And this match is only 12 minutes long. If you're going to put all this on the card, this has got to go 30 minutes, I think. Can you imagine if this match had gone 30 minutes? <laughs> I think everyone would have just left. This match is <laughs> awful. Like, not even in a funny kind of way, just in a boring way. They're, so it's a giant cage surrounding the ring, like a Hell in a Cell-sized cage. And there's some stuff, like there's some coffins and some other weapons, but there's not a lot of room. Everybody's just kind of milling around, fighting each other. There's not much intensity. And then a couple minutes into the match, they lower the electric chair from the ceiling because you win by putting one of your opponents in the electric chair and killing him. Because, yeah, that's cool, I guess. Let me Somehow this is just too far. Like, even in the sport with Buried Alive matches and Inferno matches, this is just too much to have an electric chair. It's a murder match. This is yeah. important to note. Like, I've never seen another match where the consequence for losing was that you would die. And they don't implicitly state that, but it's oh, an no, electric chair. Definitely not chair. allowed to do that. Yeah. It's the torture chair, they call it. Like, ostensibly, you can watch Sting get electrocuted on live television. Like, who? Like, I can't even conceive of that being an idea that someone would have. Like, hey, let's just have an electric chair match. Why not? Hey, fun. That's, that'll be fun for the kids. Let's put it on yeah. early so we know the kids are still watching. <laughs> yeah. The other thing about this, and maybe it's just the announcers didn't do a good job of expanding on it, but it didn't seem like there was any feud here. No. Like, of all the people who were in this match, the only two that could conceivably have been feuding at this point are Cactus Jack and Sting, because they had had some matches beforehand. But Cactus Jack is added to this at the last minute. So that's not a real thing. None of There's no heat to this match at all. But someone's going to die. <laughs> it's insane, because they had six months to build to this show. And yet, on the Clash of the Champions that led into this, none of these guys wrestled each other. Everybody was just kind of doing something else. And yet, they're having this huge, heated, crazy match. It's just, Dusty had an idea... Halloween idea for the season. It's the kind of thing a kid would come up with, is the thing. Like, it's the kind of thing I would have come up with as a child. And I did. I thought of the idea of having a match in a haunted house. And then 20 years later, the WWF would actually do that with the House of Horrors match. And it sucked. <laughs> yeah. Because when you're eight, you don't make great decisions about booking. <laughs> That's why you don't put an eight-year-old in charge of a company, but that's kind of what... I mean, Dusty was a brilliant guy, but he had some really shit ideas, too. Yeah. But let's paint a word picture about what exactly it looks like to be watching this match, okay? So you got this Hell in a Cell structure. You got, like, a bunch of dudes in there. 
and there's shit all over ringside. So they're just stepping over like coffins and like piles of wood and just random spider webs and shit. So there's not a lot of room. And then, so a lot of guys are just in the ring. But then they lower down this electric chair in this pod that's like the size of an elimination chamber pod. And it takes up, takes up like half the total space in the ring. So in order to fight around the pod, you're literally just going in like a round circle around because that's the only thing you can do so they're just people like slowly merry-go-rounding around punching each other nobody even seems that interested in fighting like you'll just see somebody punch somebody and then just wander off like there's no heat i i think everybody in this knew this was a complete disaster and there was no point to try and and then you got the ref cam like they've got he's wearing a helmet with a camera tape to the top of that and it, it's just like a terrible cheap camera and literally you can tell that all the referees ever looking at is just like oh there's that guy all right whatever there's that guy okay do you remember when for like a few weeks wwe put cameras in the ring posts i do man that sucked like that might have been worse than this what so confused me about that is that you would think that the purpose of that was to have somebody get like headbutted into the ring post and you get like that like bird's eye view, right? That yeah. never happened ever. Yeah, I wouldn't want to break the camera. It's always cool. Like now that they now they have cameras in the pylons in football. I love when somebody dives for the pylon. Oh, that's super the awesome. knock it. Or in hockey, the goal camera and somebody scores a goal and they hit, they knock out the camera. Yeah, that's cool as hell. You would think that would be the whole purpose of having the cameras there, but they were like, no, 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 be careful about that. Yeah, that, that lasted about a week, and I think the run roughly as long. Um, and, so what yeah. happens in this match? Um, so there's a big switch on one of the cage walls. Oh, you have to throw the switch to turn on the electric chair. The problem is the switch isn't rigged up properly, so it keeps falling down during the match. You can just see it in the background. It gets to the point where the referees have to climb up the cage and hold it in place to keep it from falling down. This is one of the stupidest visuals I've ever seen in wrestling history. First of all, they rigged it so that in order for it to be off, the switch had to be up. And you would think they would do it the other way, since this thing is basically made out of paper mache and plastic. Like, there's no... There's no functionality to this. It's just a prop. So uh, halfway through the the match, they're just like, oh, shit. And some ref is like standing halfway up the cage from the outside, just holding the shit up. It's embarrassing. Yeah. Uh, Klondike Bill went and fucked that one up good. Oh, my God. And it just kept falling down and nothing would happen. And so the fans just start shitting on it because obviously it's a prop and like, oh, my God. So after 12 agonizing minutes, uh, Rick Steiner is put in the torture chair. Cactus Jack goes to throw the switch without looking, but the face has managed to rescue Rick and throw Abdullah the Butcher in the chair. So Cactus throws the switch and electrocutes his partner, Abdullah. Abby actually sells this pretty well, like convulses, his eyes roll back in his head. There's flames and pyro going off. They spent quite a bit of money on this shit. They actually, I, th- I thought for sure that they caught the ring on fire at one point. I was like, uh-oh, <laughs> this is the first match on the card. That would have been a perfect way for this show. I, <sighs> even with all this, this probably should have gone on. I think this should have main evented the show. 
Oh, it absolutely should have. You can't follow this with like normal wrestling matches. Like what? Even if it sucks, at least if it's in the main event, like everybody gets to leave afterwards. <laughs> instead, yeah, instead people, this gets over and there's still like another two and a half hours left in the show. Of boring ass shit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, just a complete disaster here. This is one of the worst matches I've ever seen. Yeah. And let's know. I don't believe in negative stars, but if any match deserved negative stars, this did. Negative six stars. My favorite part about this, well, the, I have two. Firstly, is that Abdullah the Butcher basically kips up out of the chair after being electrocuted and just beats up every referee in WCW. <laughs> but no, he's like knocking him back. down and like falling down and like getting up and like it's it's sad. It, it's a bummer. But the second best part was. If you were going to fill this cage full of Halloween-themed stuff, would you put a coffin in there with a dude in a gimp suit inside? Like, I there's forgot literally, about that. There's a tiny skinny dude in one of the coffins, and when they bump into it, he just pops out, goes like, ah, and then runs away. I hope that was Tom Zank. I, I can't. I just like, And nobody sells it. They're just like, oh, oh hey, gimp guy. <laughs> gimp suits are really scary, I got to say. Holy shit. I just... <laughs> that popped somebody in the back, and I'm going to guess it was Dusty. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, so having to follow that shit is Big Josh and PN News against <laughs> the creature. <laughs> I can't even say it out loud. The creatures are just two dudes in masks. I think this is their only appearance. It's just two jobbers against Big Josh, who is... Matt Bourne doing the clown as a lumberjack. And PN News, who's a big fat white rapper, who is much more over than he deserves to be. In the annals of rap-themed wrestlers, which is a really horrible list that to go down, yeah. PN News is the worst at both rapping and wrestling. <laughs> this guy, he was a horrible wrestler. He was super dangerous. He hurt people all the time with that splash. Because, like, he doesn't jump up into the air and, like, aim it. He literally just falls from the top rope onto you. And, like, it looks very dangerous. And it, he hurts people with it. Yeah, he wrecked. I can't think of who it was. He wrecked somebody's knees with that splash, and they had to fire him. I think there was a lawsuit from that one. Holy shit. But, yeah, like, there's, there's nothing to this. There's no reason for the rap guy and the lumberjack to be friends. There's no reason for them to be doing a squash match on pay-per-view. Like, it does none of this makes sense. No, it's a short match. PN News gets the pin after a splash. It's, I mean, it wasn't terrible, but this doesn't belong on pay-per-view. And may, I guess they had plans for PN News, but why? What were you going to do with this guy? Do you uh, want to speculate on what the PN stands for? No, it's just it's <laughs> PNN instead of CNN was the, the, whole, was the whole joke. I, I just... <laughs> I can't do it. I can't. No. No. I think we've already talked about that match for too long. Yeah, I agreed. So the next match is actually pretty good. Bobby Eaton against Terry Taylor. This is Terry Taylor as Terrence Taylor. He's uh, part of the York Foundation, a group of like hedge fund-funded wrestlers uh, managed by the lovely Alexandra York, who is uh, Terry Runnels, a.k.a. Marlena. Um. And she is the manager. The gimmick is she's got a computer, and it 
uh, tells them how to win their match. And this is like a silly 90s wrestling gimmick, but I, I, I like it. I kind of really like the idea of the York Foundation because it kind of plays on like the futuristic quality of computers. And she's like an analyst who has a laptop with her by ringside and she's constantly like analyzing the match to tell her like her guys what they should do next. Like, hey, when he goes for the headlock, like shoot him off off the ropes. There you go. That's what it says in the computer to do. Yeah. Yeah. Not a bad gimmick at all. Um, so this is a good match. They work hard here. There's a lot of bumps. Um, Eaton gets slammed on the ramp. Eaton slams Taylor on the ramp, and then he hits him with a splash from the top rope down on the ramp. It's that ramp that WCW occasionally used that goes all the way straight to the ring and is like connected to the ring. Uh, they would stop using this because this is the ramp that Rick Rude unfortunately broke his back on. Um, he got knocked into it and hit his back on it. But I always thought this was—I always thought that was kind of cool to have the ramp touch the ring like that, and you could do some fun spots with it. Oh, absolutely! I mean, Japanese wrestling still kind of uses this sort of ramp fairly frequently. Not so much anymore, but they kept using it into the thousands. And I think it, it's cool. Like it provides a really cool visual. Yeah. Um, Eaton takes the Bret Hart bump where he gets knocked off the apron, um, chest first onto the guardrail. Taylor hits a big doctor bomb on the ramp, and then Eaton wins with a big right hand in the Alabama jam. Good, solid match. Uh, maybe the best of the night. Steve Austin and Dustin Rhodes had a good match, too. I don't know that we've gotten really the chance to talk a whole lot about Bobby Eaton, but man, was he fucking good. Yeah, he never really got the singles run that I feel like he could have. I mean, he gets his singles run here because Stan Lane's gone. And he's around in WSW into the late 90s, but he's, you know, Earl Robert Eaton. He's William Regal's sidekick. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a shame that he never really got to be what he could have been, but fuck, man, it's, it's cool to see him just being so goddamn good. And eventually we'll actually do a show with, like, the Midnight Express on it because they were an amazing tag team that I feel like a lot of people today really don't know about. No, still. I mean, now that the Rock and Roll Express have gone in, I think I assume their Hall of Fame induction has come in. I would hope so, man, because there is no Rock and Roll without the Midnight's. Yeah. Um, so the next match is uh, Johnny B. Bad against Jimmy Garvin. Um, so I pieced together from my research that Johnny B. Bad is a heel here because he wrestled Sting on the previous Clash of the Champions. I'm glad that you did that research because there's really nothing here to indicate that he's a heel at all. He's going up against the Freebirds, who are heels that people love, so it's weird. Yeah, I mean, he's got Teddy Long as his manager, and Teddy Long distracts the referee at some points here, but it's it's not a particularly good match. Jimmy Garvin was not really in much shape to be working by this point. Injuries were starting to take their toll. Um there's a really nasty bump here where Garvin hip tosses um, Johnny B. Bad over the top rope. There's just no good way to take that. No, and he like splats right on the ground, and it's super rough. Like, this is not a match that has a lot of heat to it, and it's like way weird to take a bump that huge for no reason. Yeah, so I guess credit credit to Johnny for that. Uh, Garvin hits the DDT, but Teddy Long distracts the referee. Um, 
bad hits the uh, tutti fruity punch of death for the win. Let's say that out loud again, just for a moment. The tutti fruity punch of death. <laughs> hey, Mark Miro used to be a boxer. I mean, and it must be said, <clears throat> Johnny V. Bad is pretty entertaining. Like, yeah, I always like this character. There's a lot of charisma to the character. Like, you can see what WWE saw in him as this character when they went and signed him. And then, unfortunately, what they got was Mark Marrow. Yeah, the problem is WCW owned this character. So they had to make him the wild man and then a boxer. And it turned out the real star was Sable. Yeah, so that is what it is. But it's just, it's not, this isn't bad. <clears throat> Jimmy Garvin is just fine. Johnny Uvad is super green here. I can't believe that he's still with the company like four years after this. Like that's crazy. That that's the thing that shocks me is I didn't realize he had started this early because he's yeah he's still around into the Nitro era, and he really doesn't ever do anything. Yeah, I think he gets the TV title at some point, but that's the extent of it. But he's he's an over babyface character for several <clears throat> years. Oh yeah, like you can definitely see like it's if they want to. Yeah, if you want to make this a more kids-engineered show, like Sting and Johnny B. Bad are two stars that are going to work. Yeah. So next up uh, for the TV title, we've got Stunning Steve Austin defending against Dustin Rhodes. It's the TV title with a 10-minute time limit, so you can kind of guess where this one's going. Um, it's a good match here. These guys are both so smooth and athletic. I mean, Dustin Rhodes is probably all of 23 years old here, but there's a reason they called him the natural. Um Dustin bleeds everywhere, which is kind of typical. Then Austin bleeds, too, for no particular reason. Um, you know, we, we start coming down the stretch. I, I always like how in WCW the announcer would count how much, you know, we're five minutes gone by, five minutes left, four minutes left, three minutes. With two minutes left, Dustin starts getting hot. He starts hitting everything. Crossbody, 10-punch, bionic elbow. He hits the diving bulldog has the pin, but time runs out. Um, just kind of the classic TV title finish with the heel retained because the time limit expires. Yeah, it, it was a good match. It really was. Like, Steve Austin was so goddamn good in the ring at this point. And he and Dustin have a ton of chemistry. It's, all, it's actually, like, these two wrestled each other so many goddamn times during this period. It's kind of funny that they never really wrestled in WWE. <laughs> Yeah, no. Austin and Goldust never really got together. I don't know if that would that may have been a Steve Austin didn't want to work with that kind of character thing. I've never heard a story on that one. I mean, they were both kind of heels the entire time that really Goldust would have been around in Austin's stratosphere. So maybe it was something like that. But <clears throat> this was really good. There's not too much to really say about it. I mean, it's just kind of a, a nice, solid mid-card match that on a different card, wouldn't have really been all that spectacular. But on this one, is about the only competent match you've got to see. Yep. Uh, next up, we've got Bill Kazmaier versus Oz in a squash match. Woof. Oz is, Oz is Kevin Nash, so you'd think it would be Kevin Nash squashing Bill Kazmaier, but it's not. Is there even words to describe, like, the waste of Kevin Nash in this whole thing. Like, when we last saw him on the last show, he was doing a Road Warriors knockoff with a guy who was even greener than he was. In the meantime, they've decided to make him this character, Oz. Now, the important thing about this is that Turner 
owned the Wizard of Oz film, I'm pretty sure. Because with Turner yeah. Classic Movies, like they were basically had just released that and they were doing this thing where they were basically buying up all of the old classic films and just showing them all the time. So literally they were like, hey, let's do some crossover. Let's make him the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> do you think they hadn't seen the Wizard of Oz and didn't know that the Wizard of Oz isn't a real thing in the movie? That it's just a projection? I wonder if they like literally wa watched right up to the point where the projection is and then it's just like, okay, I get it, and just stop the movie. Just like, nope, there's nobody behind the curtain. It's just actually a big, huge, cool dude. Yeah, so he's got his hair like dyed white. He's got a big white beard. He's got this giant you know, wizard costume he comes out in. And he still looks amazing. He's Kevin Nash, like young, buff Kevin Nash. Like he's not really as in this person as someone worth pushing. Yeah, he's not as in shape as he would eventually be, but like he looks fucking amazing, especially compared to a lot of people on the show. Because it's important to remember that WCW's idea of what a pay-per-view should be was like young dudes versus like old ass flabby dudes in like every single match. And Bill Kazmeyer looks like shit. And Kevin Nash looks like a million dollars. This is probably the highlight of Bill Kazmaier's career in wrestling, right? That he beat Kevin Nash on a pay-per-view. I think it would have to be. This is one of those things. Like, whenever a promoter hears the words world's strongest man, they're just like, oh, great. And they immediately book him on the card, despite the fact that this has never gotten anyone over. Mark Henry labored under this name for like a decade before he got over for other reasons. This is not, nobody gives a shit about Ken Patero. Nobody gives a shit about Bill Kazmaier. This doesn't Ken work. Patera, Dino Bravo. Yeah. Like nobody gives a shit that you're super strong, especially if you look like a dork, which Bill Kazmaier looks horrible. He's got a bald spot the size of Neptune. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. And just to reiterate about Kevin Nash. Six foot ten, great looking guy, ton of charisma, great body, former college basketball player, U.S. Army veteran, auto worker from Detroit. There is so much to work with here, and they have no ideas for him. And let the record show that when Oz doesn't work, they're going to repackage him, give him another shot. They take a look at him, take a look at all those things you just mentioned, and the thing that stands out to them is, Hey, he's pretty funny backstage. Let's make him a fucking comedian card shark from Vegas. Yep. And three years after this, he's the WWF champion. Yeah. Boy. As a guy from the Steel City, or not Steel City, but a guy from Motor the City. A guy from the Motor City who's just tough, bad, badass. Go yep. figure that worked. And somehow things get worse from here. Next match, Van Hammer versus Doug Summers. I don't even want to talk about this. Van Hammer sucks, and I can't believe he was around this long. I can't, like... And he never got any better. This is the amazing thing about Van Hammer. When he's coming out to the ring, he looks fucking stupid, but I can see it. You know what I mean? Like, he's got a pretty good look. There aren't a lot of guys on the show that are, like, super cut like he is and, like, super muscular like WWE guys were at the time. So he kind of stands out. And I'm like, okay, okay, I see it. In one minute and 13 seconds, he messes up 14 moves. Like, 
he's messing up everything. Like, he's never even seen a wrestling match before. Like, he learned it in a different language from somebody by hearsay. And it's just like, oh, uh, I guess I do it like this. Yeah. Just a disaster. And they give him the most complicated finishing move you could possibly give a green asshole like this. Like, the slingshot suplex? Nobody does that right ever. And you give it to this guy? Yeah, even guys who are good can't do that move, right? Even Tully Blanchard fucked it up like one time out of 50. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. All right, so next match is for the, to crown the WCW light heavyweight champion. It's Richard Morton versus Brian Pillman. Yes, Richard Morton, not Ricky Morton, because they turned him heel and put him in the York Foundation. And unsurprisingly, it doesn't really work. This is a match between two kind of all-time talents, and it is a fart. This is Richard Morton's idea of how to be heel is headlocks. Yeah. This should be great on paper. Like, Ricky Morton versus Brian Pillman sounds awesome. But turning Ricky Morton heel takes away literally his greatest skill, which is selling. Yep. He's one of the greatest sellers who ever lived in the wrestling business. He's not just inherently a great wrestler who can do it all. He's just a, an amazing seller who has been in a lot of great matches. Like, you put him in a singles match where he's got to be the heel, what, what the fuck are you going to do with it? Like, they don't do anything. He gets more offense in this match than he had probably gotten in his entire career up to this point. And he really all he did in the tag matches was get his ass kicked. And it really seems like he doesn't know what to do with it. Nope. Um, probably the funniest part of this is that Wally Yamaguchi, who would later chop off Balvinus's dick with a samurai sword, is one of the NWA dignitaries at ringside here. NWA dignitaries. It. <laughs> How do you think he feels that that's his legacy? Like, the, the choppy choppy your pee-pee is what he'll be remembered for through the ages. I don't know. I hope he has a good sense of humor about it. I agree. Like, I, I would be pretty proud of it. I'd be like, hey, yeah, I'm the dick-chopping guy. <laughs> I'd pr I would definitely put that sword on my wall, and I'd probably hang the picture on the wall, too. Hell yeah, man. Uh, this is a really disappointing match. Pillman wins with the body press. He's the light heavyweight champion. This title ends up going nowhere because Bill Watts wasn't into small guys, so he ended up killing off the title once he took over. There's literally only one place that it's going to go, and that's to the Justin Liger match, which was an all-time amazing match, and that's it. That's the only reason it ever existed. It's Pillman and Liger from Super Brawl 92, I think. Yeah, and a holy shit, that's a great match. I wish we were watching it right now. Yeah, instead of this garbage. Uh, next up, we've got the Halloween Phantom against Tom Zeng. So the Halloween Phantom is a masked mystery man. He's been doing squash matches for the few weeks into this, and we're waiting to see the reveal of who this man is. Um, he wins real quick with a hangman's neckbreaker, and then slapdick Tony Schiavone, presumably in a fit of rage because Tom Zenk was defeated, decides to spoil the identity of the Halloween Phantom by saying, hey, that looked like the rude awakening, didn't it? I can't imagine what the fuck he was thinking. And I would have given really great money to see the look on Jim Ross's oh face. Because there's like a 30-second silence after he says that where I bet Jim Ross is just looking at him like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, just this is an actual good surprise reveal they've come up with here. 
a good one, but they're not blowing off the surprise for another two segments. I, how often does a surprise in wrestling really deliver? It's not very often. Almost right? never, yeah. Yeah, like the more you build it up, I mean, Rikishi running over Stone Cold, Vince McMahon is the greater power, Jason Jordan is Kurt Angle's son. It's not a great history. It, and like we'll eventually get to the reveal, which is pretty fucking cool. And if it had not been immediately spoiled, like at least the crowd was into it because they don't have to hear Tony Schiavone spoil it for him. But at home, I'm just like, oh, okay, okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know. I really don't know what the story is there. And even, even if he didn't know who it was, that would still be a really stupid thing to say because. You're planting the idea that it's Rick Rude, so if it's not Rick Rude, that's going to be a letdown. If it is, you spoiled the surprise. Yep, pretty much. All right. So next match for the WCW World Tag Team Championship, we got the Enforcers, Arn Anderson and Larry Zabisco, defending against the United States Tag Team Champions of the Patriots, Todd Champion and Firebreaker Chip. I'm a big fan of Arn Anderson and Larry Zabisco together. Just like... The two most old-school, hard-ass, traditional pro wrestlers you could possibly put together. And you just watch them beat up and stretch guys. Yeah, I fucking love these two together. Like, it's a great thing. Like, another time we'll probably cover Larry Zabisco more fully. Because I find him to be one of the most interesting people in wrestling history. Especially during the 80s. But this is a great tag team. It totally works. The Patriots are super fucking lame. I can't imagine why they thought somebody named Firebreaker Chip was going to get over, but this is all the Enforcers, and the crowd is way on the side of the Enforcers. Yeah. Uh, I, I really don't know anything about these guys other than they're just too generic, like white guys. And if these are your United States Tag Champions, it's time to throw those belts in the trash. Pretty much. Um Nothing much to this match. Arn and Larry win after a spine buster. Love Arn and Larry. Would have loved to see them against the Steiner brothers here, but the Steiner brothers were in the Chamber of Fours. Yeah. Again, like I said, just think about all the talent that was out there that they're not using because of the fucking Chamber of Fours. Yep. So next up, Eric Bischoff brings out Pauly dangerously for an interview. Uh, Pauly has recently been fired as commentator for being too controversial, but he reveals he's still got his manager's license and he is planning to get his revenge on WCW. He's going to destroy WCW's you know, franchise player, Sting, and he's got help because he's got the Halloween Phantom here. And the Halloween Phantom, of course, rips off his mask to reveal that it's Rick Rude. Man, this is a great reveal, too, because as Polly is cutting this promo about this guy that he has gotten to help him take out Sting and punish WCW for their treatment of him, they're like, Medusa's there, and she's slowly, like, stripping off the costume, and then finally they pull the mask off, the music hits, and it's just Rick Rude just grinning into the camera as the crowd freaks out. Like, it's a great reveal. Yeah. I mean, like I said, it's a wrestling surprise that actually delivered. This is a huge hit for WCW here. Rick Rude is a legit star. I mean, this is only a year after he main evented SummerSlam against the Ultimate Warrior. Like, this is as big of a guy as they could have possibly brought in at this point. And this was a great storyline. Like, it, it's 
the idea of Paul Heyman like bringing in an outside mercenary guy who, like, and I love the way that Root explained this all, where it's just like most guys would just be like, "Yeah, I'm here to kill you, Steam." Blah blah blah. He was just like, "Only things I care about in this world are my women, my money, and myself." And my money man over here has got a problem, and I'm gonna solve it. Like I love that as a rationale. Yeah, he's just here to make money. He's not evil. He's just greedy. And like this uh, dangerous alliance stable should have been such a bigger deal for WCW. It really should have. Oh yeah, it's like the NWO before the NWO. They should have written this for at least a year, and instead they get they get a good couple months out of it. But they should have gone all the way with this. This was kind of the one thing they had that was clicking in this era. And we're talking about like four Hall of Famers in this stable, right? It's yeah. Who who does it end up being? It's I think it ends up being Rude, Arn, Zabisco, and uh, Austin. Steve Austin and Bobby. I think Bobby Eaton's in there too. I mean, holy shit! What a stable yeah. that is. Yeah. And, that, and, and I mean, yet, yeah, that stable should have led to Steve Austin getting into the main event. Basically, that stable could have feuded with Sting for four years, and absolutely. they absolutely, yeah, no, they just they just kind of drop it after six months, as I remember. It's yeah, it's it's really unfortunate. It's a big missed opportunity, but that's just the story of WCW in this era. Yep. So after slogging through all of that, it's main event time. Lex Luger defending the world title against Ron Simmons in a two out of three falls match. Um, Luger, of course, has Harley Race in his corner. Ron Simmons has Dusty Rhodes for some reason. They're really treating this kind of like a big sporting event. They show a really good video package of Ron Simmons, you know, going back to Florida State to train in the weight room and run the steps at the stadium and they interview Bobby Bowden and he puts over what a great guy and great athlete Ron Simmons is. If you don't know about Ron Simmons football career, he's an all-time college football legend, one of the best players in the history of Florida State University. Uh, his jersey's retired. He's in the College Football Hall of Fame. Just an absolute badass. Boy, this would have been a really great show to have in Florida. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it was super great. I love that video. I love them bringing up the history. I love that there was like a hand painted portrait of Ron Simmons that he posed next to doing the same facial expression. Uh, the only missed opportunity from the whole thing was they interview Bobby Bowden legit at that time, one of the most famous coaches who had ever lived. And like the audio is so fucked up. You can't even tell what he's saying. Can you imagine when they like put that tape in after they'd done it? And just the feeling in the pit of their stomach when they realized the audio was fucked. Like, just for reference, just imagine, like, TNA had, like, Monty Brown, right, who played for the Patriots under Bill Belichick and won a Super Bowl. Can you imagine if they had gotten Bill Belichick to do an interview putting over Monty Brown, but the fucking audio was so horrible that you couldn't even understand what he was saying? Like, you're never going to get a second chance. Like, why did you no. not make sure it was good? Yeah, and you're right. You're not going to get back in there with 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 Bobby Bowden. So they no. just they just roll with it. Should they have used it? I'd say sure. Even though the audio quality was shit, it was just the image of Bobby Bowden talking about Ron Simmons was cool. They should have just showed him giving a thumbs up, being like, "I guess Bobby likes him." Yeah. So this match isn't as bad as it could be, but it's not very good. The crowd's not 
very into Simmons. He's not been around for long enough to be in the spot. Uh, Simmons wins the first fall in quick fashion with a spine buster. And Lex Luger is just completely blown up five minutes into this match. He can't even stand up. Well, you mentioned earlier that Ricky Morton did more offense than he's probably ever had to do. By the same contrast, I don't think Lex Luger's ever taken this many bumps in a match in his life. Like, normally his matches were he just pinballed people all around and then maybe took, like, one bump at the end. Here, he's got a bump on, like, 20 spine busters and shit, and he just looks like he does not know how to do that. He is absolutely sucking wind, and Jim Ross totally buries him on commentary. <laughs> it's yeah, one of does. those things I love about JR, that he's just not shy about calling somebody out. Oh my god, it's so hilarious. Like He's just like, well, I guess the champ's uh, not in the condition that we thought he was in. <laughs> like, holy shit, JR. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, the second fall is won by Luger. He charges Simmons and spills over the top rope, and Simmons is disqualified because over the top rope is a disqualification. Nope. In WCW at this point. What do you think about that rule? Because I know a lot of people kind of railed against it for years as being one of the stupidest ass decisions. Like, what do you think about that specific rule? I don't I don't mind it for two reasons. First, I think it's just a good kind of cop out chicken shit heel finish. Like you could totally see the honky tonk man keeping the Intercontinental title because he took a bump over the top rope. Right. Um and also, I think it adds some realism, because if you're allowed to throw your opponent over the top rope, why wouldn't you just do that all the time? Because that's the most damaging thing you could do to them, would be to throw them out of the ring and onto the floor. Well, a good example of that is exactly what we talked about earlier, with like Johnny Bad being hip-tossed onto the fucking floor from the ring. Though, why was Garvin not disqualified for that? Because <laughs> they just forgot about the... Well, because... The- they forgot about the rule, and the referee wasn't gonna, you know, end the match there. You don't, you don't actually want the referee to call the match like a shoot. How funny would it be though if they started doing that? It was just like, nope, sorry, went over the top. You're done. There was a brief time where they did that in WWE, and then like a couple finishes got fucked up, so <laughs> they had to stop doing it. But that um, one of Chris Benoit's last matches was like that. I think they called the disqualification because. He was getting double teamed in a tag match. I swear, I I vaguely remember one time that they like w- almost disqualified somebody for not holding the tag rope, and I was like, "What the fuck?" That's not a disqualification. It's the tag doesn't count if you don't hold the tag rope. That's just uh, okay. <laughs> Let's just pretend like that's always been happening. So third fall. Simmons misses a charge. He hits the post. Luger hits him with a pile driver, which is called the attitude adjustment. So let the record reflect that that's who John Cena ripped off when they had to change the name of the FU. Nice. And Luger gets the pin to retain the match and retain the title. Not not a very good match. Definitely not up to kind of the WCW main event standards and They've lost a lot of their brand here, I think, when they don't have those great main events. Because that was what they would always put over, that this is real wrestling. You know, These guys aren't just posing. They're, they've been in there 20, 30 minutes now going full force, and they don't have a champion who can wrestle that style. And it's important to realize that, like again, like in the 70s and the early 80s, they had a lot of guys who could go like that. that like That was sort of the norm. 
And over the years, it really became just Ric Flair on top doing that. And there really weren't a lot of other guys who are really capable of doing a match like that to that degree. Like it kind of died with Ric Flair in a way. And the important thing to note about that was that the fans still expected it because of Flair. And when he left, the NWA effectively died with him. And there's just nothing that they could do about it. But let me ask you this. Like, Ron Simmons, we both kind of agree, as a main eventer, just didn't work, right? Too soon. I, th I think he should have been a guy they were grooming. Like, he, sh he should be getting the title at Starcade next year. Right. Well, if this is Flair instead of Luger, do you think it works better? Oh, Simmons against Simmons against Flair would have been pretty – because Ric Flair's great. I, I still think it would be too soon to kind of put him in that spot. If you've got somebody who you really want to be the champion – they should win their first big title match, is my opinion. Don't have them, you know, I think you should book bo book wrestling like it's boxing, like it's MMA, and in boxing, when a guy gets his first big title shot, if you want him, want him to be a big money-drawing champion, you want him to win. Is this a uh, kind of a deep cut about a certain person not winning the title at the last pay-per-view? Oh, Nakamura? Yeah. <laughs> Well, he already he already didn't win it at SummerSlam, so I guess too late for that. But yeah, I I would say it that way that yeah, I wouldn't have given Nakamura a title shot before he was going to win, unless they don't see him as a main event guy. If they don't, they don't. Then if they don't, there's no reason to worry about it. Then if they don't, I'm gonna go down to fucking Stanford, Connecticut, and choke a bitch. <laughs> yeah, I maybe I mean it could be I mean it could be the case of Vince doesn't get it, but I don't know. Yeah. Um, so wrapping up, this this was complete garbage. Don't watch this. Chamber of Horrors is good to laugh at. The rest of the show is trash. Yeah, I mean that's totally the case. Even the stuff that we had complimentary things to say about, like you don't ever need to see him. Like Austin and Rhodes are going to have way better matches at other shows that you can watch instead. You don't need to see this main event. Like don't bother to do it to yourself. It's just there's just nothing fun here. Like there's a lot of stuff that's fun for us to make fun of on this podcast, but it's like it's not a a show that's worth your time. Go watch Pillman versus Liger instead. Yeah, we watched this so that you don't have to. Exactly. Um so I think that wraps us for Halloween Havoc 91. Just a bad period for WCW and things wouldn't get, they would get better for a little while in 1992, but by the time we got to Halloween Havoc 92, everything was falling apart again. But we'll cover that next week. It's spin the wheel, make the deal. Sting versus Jake the Snake Roberts. Spin the wheel, make the deal. Spin the wheel, make the deal. Spin the wheel. And to make that deal. And the wheel landed on a coal miner's glove match. <laughs> I could go for like an hour just on the wheel spinning ceremony. So like we'll get to all of that next week. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next week.